Welcome to Hospitality and Politics. I am your host, Andrew Ridgey, and this show is powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Today, we are recording live from ICSC's New York Deal-Making Conference over at the Jacob Javits Center on the west side of Manhattan. So ICSC is the International Council of Shopping Centers, and their mission is to ensure the retail real estate industry is broadly recognized for the integral role it plays in social, civic, and economic vibrancy of communities across the globe. It was founded in 1957. Today, they have a 70,000-member network joined together in one vibrant global community. So I want to thank them for having me here to do the show, Hospitality and Politics. I have a great guest today, Stephen Sodendike. He is the Executive Managing Director at the commercial real estate company, Hushman and Wakefield. So today we are going to talk about the state of restaurant real estate, the market, perhaps a little bit about retail too, regulations, the future of the industry from a real estate perspective. So if you like the show, hopefully you will go and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can leave a review, share it on social media. We are at, that is the New York City Hospitality Alliance, is at at the NYC Alliance. That's at the NYC Alliance, both on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn at New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I am your host, Andrew Ridgey, and I am on Twitter at Andrew Ridgey. That's at Andrew, R-I-G-I-E, and on Instagram at Political Foodie NYC. As always, this podcast is supported by members of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. We are the main group that represents restaurant and nightlife establishments throughout the five boroughs, fighting in the halls of government, being their voice in the media, and making sure they have the support they need to succeed. So, if you want to learn more, go to thenycalliance.org, thenycalliance.org. And now, let's get into this conversation. Mr. Stephen Sodendike. Perfect. And I got it right. How's it going? You have an excellent uh, intro voice. This is really an excellent podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. (laughs) So we are live here in the Javits Center. We are in a glass booth within the massive glass Javits Center. And we have people walking by and we're really excited to be here. So to start it off, let's hear just a little bit about what you do. Uh, I'm a retail leasing broker in Manhattan. I've been at Cushman and Wakefield for 15 years. Uh, And I match landlords and tenants uh, who have storefronts, retail uh, tenants, whether it's apparel, food and beverage, drugstores, pharmacies, shoe repair guys, dry cleaners, small businesses, large businesses, chains, a little bit of everything, but mostly on the ground floor in Manhattan and in Brooklyn. How long have you been doing this for? 15 years. So you've probably seen, oh, that's great. So I've actually been doing my work. I've been in the food service, hospitality industry my whole life, but... I've been doing this kind of advocacy work on behalf of the hospitality industry for about 15 years. So we've probably both seen professionally how the industry has changed. So you mentioned apparel and food service and all of these different sectors. Um, right now, obviously, people talk about the retail crisis. Um, a lot of developments are food and beverage driven. What do you see as, you know, what are developers looking for when it comes to filling a vacant storefront? Yeah, I think the differentiating factor for large format developments as well as smaller buildings is food and beverage more and more these days. 
Um, I think that the New York customer demands a higher-end food and beverage experience um, and just cares about eating better than they ever did in the past, eating and drinking better than they ever did in the past. Um, so I think that that's an important component of any development. Food and beverage transactions in 2018 represented almost 50% of the total volume of transactions, retail transactions done in Manhattan. So it's a huge driver for our market. It's what I spend the, the majority of my time working on. Um, and that's small and large food and beverage transactions that can range the gamut from a 500 square foot coffee shop. I did one of those, did a couple of those last year. Uh, to a 2,000-foot QSR fast casual in Midtown. I did a handful of those last year. To a 10 to 15,000-foot food hall concept. To a 7,500-square-foot, 300-seat full-service fine dining restaurant. So uh, I live on the Upper West Side. I'm on the community board. In my neighborhood, there was this town hall the other day. A lot of elected officials were there, mm -hmm. you know, talking about you know, the retail vacancy. But I like to have conversations with a lot of different people that look at kind of retail, restaurants, commercial space from different perspectives. So are you pessimistic about the market? Are you optimistic? Are you bullish? Like, what's the feeling you get when you speak with other brokers and also when you speak with potential clients? Yeah, I think, I think it's a, a difficult market. It has been for some time. I think we probably peaked out in terms of activity, velocity, uh, a low availability rate and per square foot rent sometime in 2014 to 2015. The last 36 to 48 months have been a challenge for landlords in particular. I think it's a really good time, however, to be a retail tenant. It's a really good time to be opening stores in Manhattan. Rents are as low as they've been since the financial crisis of 2009. There's a lot of available space to choose from. Landlords have shown tremendous flexibility in terms of lease term, use, uh, concession packages where they perhaps 10 years ago would have never considered giving a restaurant tenant a cash contribution to help build. More and more they're doing that. Free rent, uh, landlord work, all of that stuff, uh, landlords are showing a lot of flexibility. So it's a really good time to be a retail tenant. It might be a challenging time to be a retail landlord, but there's a flip side to that coin. You know, I was talking with someone the other day, um, and they were saying that for small business owners, restaurateurs, they had a restaurant for a long time, and, you know, their pension was the idea that one day they'd sell their business. Yeah. Um, I've heard there's less of, you know, kind of key money because there's enough vacant storefronts or someone says, you know, I want to sell you my restaurant. It's like, well, I'll just wait till you go out of business and, you know, I'll, I'll take over the space. Do you see key money at all? No. And I think we don't see it as much as we might have a decade ago or 20 years ago. I think you just hit on the two main reasons for that. One is uh, there are a lot more built restaurant installations uh, in vacant spaces than there were 15 years ago. And the second is that uh, key money used to also be about selling your below market lease to a new operator. And the, the way rents have gone over the last 36 to 48 months, there just aren't that many more sure. below market leases. And that, again, has to do with a lot more flexibility in terms of uh, rents for landlords. So tenants just can get better deals on their own without needing to pay key money to a previous owner. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch kind of the ebbs and flows and the changes in these markets. I remember a lot of landlords, you know, they would only want a dry tenant, so like a retail tenant. But now you see, you know, restaurant, 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 bar. Um, what do you think landlords are really looking for? I mean, is there a type of uh, tenant 
in the food and beverage space that they really like? Is it fast casual? Is it full service? Um, yeah, I think I think fast casual, if it's an operator that has a certain number of stores and a certain level of experience, that's probably the ideal food and beverage tenant. Um, from an operational standpoint, things are relatively streamlined. They sort of know what to expect. Um, you know, if you're dealing with a Dos Toros, a Chipotle, a Chopped, a Sweet Green, a fast casual tenant that has dozens of stores, from an operational, operational standpoint, a landlord sort of knows what to expect as far as trash, as far as build quality and construction, that doesn't really fluctuate. So I think that's probably the ideal, but uh, landlords recognize that they can't get the ideal all the time. And I think they're honestly just looking for a tenant that will pay the rent, stay in business, be successful. I, I hear more in the last three years, landlords talk about wanting to partner with their tenants more than they ever have. And whereas a landlord 15 years ago might've just said, how many stores do they have? What does their credit look like? Let's just decide on a, or let's negotiate a rent and hopefully they can pay it. Now it's, I want to get into your business. What is your check average? How, how many turns are you doing a night? What does your labor cost look like? What do your food costs look like? How do they fluctuate? And that's because they want to have confidence that they'll be able to stay in business. A, a landlord really does not want a, a vacant store. They not only want to generate rental income, but they want to do something for their larger building upstairs. As for a, a residential rental building, they want to provide an amenity for their uh, residents upstairs. If it's an office building, even more so, amenitizing uh, office buildings is a huge part of driving what's driving the food and beverage real estate business in New York these days. You know, so you almost kind of inadvertently answered uh, a question, so I'm going to reframe it a sure. bit, but, you know, a lot of times you hear that a landlord wants, you know, a quote unquote, you know, credit worthy tenant. They want someone with multiple locations, someone with a proven concept. And that puts the mom and pop, the independent operator, perhaps somewhere at a disadvantage. So what should, you know, someone with one restaurant opening their first one, maybe they have two places, what should they be thinking about um, if they want to, like you said, partner with their landlord? I guess you said, the landlord wants to know table turns, but how, how should uh, smaller independent mom and pop go about the lease process? Well, I think, uh, first of all, if you have an existing operation store, restaurant, whatever, to invite a potential partner and a landlord into that space, show them the back of house, show them the front of house, show them your day to day, show them your books, even potentially, if you feel comfortable doing that, or just give them a sense of how your business ebbs and flows. Um, I think landlords more than ever are excited about partnering with local businesses and with mom and pops. Um, don't forget, you know, Chopped, Sweetgreen, Dos Toros, those are all local chains that started either in New York or DC just in the last decade. So, you know, those aren't monolithic Starbucks, McDonald's-like chains. They started with one store. They invited their second landlord into their first store and said, here's what I'm trying to build. I'm trying to build a salad company. Here's what my front of house looks like. Here's what my back of house looks like. Here's operationally how your building will be impacted. And here's what my growth plan is for the next 10, 15 years. They've executed on that growth plan really well, but they started as a small business. Um, so I, you know, I don't see a lot of restaurateurs, mom and pops who say, I want to open one store and that's it. Yeah. Um, especially younger entrepreneurs. 
the goal is to build a, a business that scales, to build a number of different restaurants. Very few people are co content, especially with the challenges in the food and beverage business. It's difficult to be I profitable. talk with a lot of restaurateurs and they say it used to be one restaurant and I could make a living yeah. uh, and that would be my life. But now they say I need two or three because the margins continue to go down as the cost to operate go up and up. Um, and it also, it's, you know, it's changed the dynamic a little bit of the industry where I think in the past you could be that traditional restaurateur. But because of all the pressures, I think people are moving more into becoming like a CEO. I was interviewing a restaurateur the other day and, you know, uh, Robert Greeno, the uh, CEO of Five Napkin Burger. Mm. And when I said you're the CEO, he said, I don't love that title. He said, I'm really the head coach. Right. <laughs> and and I, I thought it was a great example. And then other people always tell me, I don't even feel like a restaurateur. I feel like a chief compliance officer. Right. Um, and I think not just the real estate costs. And that's one of the frustrations sometimes that I have having conversations with either elected officials or other people. And you can't blame them because it's not their industry. But, you know, it's not just the rent. Um, you know, as a percentage of sales, rents historically were for a restaurant were about, you know, 10 percent, yeah. um, you know, sometimes a little bit lower. I think now they're pushing it. But labor costs, for example, are skyrocketing. They can be 35, 40 percent of your, you know, sales. And you don't know when the next mandated increase is going to be. Right. And to your point, there, there are economies of scale to having multiple stores. Yeah. Um, from a compliance standpoint, Department of Health, labor issues you mentioned, uh, f purchasing mm -hmm. is a huge component of that. So, you know, there are economies of scale to purchasing more produce, to purchasing more protein. Um, and I think really good restaurateurs want to take advantage of that. And of course, as you mentioned, it is really about compressed margins and owning one restaurant really just isn't enough. But moreover, uh, I, I think that most new operators to the business or new restaurateurs want to grow something bigger yeah. than that. And maybe it's one concept like Five Napkin Burger. That's a really good example. They started with one store with one restaurant on, on Ninth Avenue, actually in the neighborhood I live in yeah. and have grown to four or five, I think, in Manhattan. Sure. They could probably do a great business in an airport. They could probably do a great business in Penn Station. They could probably expand to D.C., Boston, um, and grow to a 20 or 30 store chain and, and benefit from those economies of scale. But they started with one restaurant in Hell's Kitchen on Ninth Avenue. Yeah, and it's interesting, um, you know, looking for those future opportunities. So when you're dealing with, you know, restaurant clients that have a bunch of brick and mortars, you know, Food halls, it's nothing new anymore, but that was always kind of like the concept of, oh, like, let me open, you know, in a food hall. But you mentioned airports. Are there other kind of interesting places that you see food and beverage opportunities outside of just the general, you know, I'm going to open up a restaurant, uh, you know, on the Hell's street kitchen? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, look, uh, the honest answer is that airports are a no brainer for any food and beverage operator. It's a captive audience. They literally yeah. can't leave. Uh, they're generally pretty hungry. They're relatively price insensitive. Um, and for years and years, historically, the quality of airport food offerings has been atrocious. Yes. I, I don't know if that's, that, that's I don't know if that's the word. That's polite. <laughs> okay, um, I think that uh, to uh, the Port Authority, their credit, they've really upped the food and beverage mm -hmm. offerings. Uh, now I go to Newark. Now I go to LaGuardia. Everything is ordered on an iPad. Everything is still tremendously expensive, but the food quality, I think, is way better than it ever was. And they've 
they've allowed local operators. And again, we talk about a, a local burger concept started by a New York entrepreneur who wanted to open one restaurant in 1984, whenever Danny Meyer opened Union Square Cafe and expanded into a publicly traded hamburger chain. But opening Shake Shack in the airport, um, allowing New York restaurateurs and local operators to benefit from that captive audience uh, and to improve the the uh, food offerings in all of these airports and any public transportation center. I think they're great opportunities. Uh, MTA did it at Grand Central probably first, and and that was in the late 90s they started that program. Um, and that's been relatively successful. There have been some issues I, I've read about uh, recently about some challenges um, in the basement of Grand Central, but I represent the Port Authority at the bus terminal. They've been trying to elevate their food and beverage offering. Um, the difference between the airports and Penn Station and the Port and, the, and Grand Central is people stay at airports for two hours while they wait for their flight. People want to get out of the Port Authority yeah. bus terminal at Penn I, Station like, pretty my, quick. My wife laughs at me because I like to get to airports early sometimes. So yeah, I want to check the, out the food and people. beverage. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to taste this and I want, I want to see what's happening. Yeah. What I've also found interesting, and I guess this is kind of where your kind of restaurant and retail worlds collide. You've seen a lot of retail now incorporate aspects of food and beverage. I was in a clothing store and they had a little coffee shop. I was in a barber shop and they had a little bar. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's going on, what you're hearing from retail clients about incorporating food and beverage and creating that experience? Yeah, I think that's about engaging with their customers uh, in ways other than just putting merchandise out on the floor and selling it in a, in a very traditional way that doesn't really resonate with customers today. Um, food and beverage programs within especially larger department stores. I think what Nor Nordstrom just opened uh, their new women's flagship on 57th Street last month. I believe there's six restaurants within yes. that department store. That is wild to me. But I, when I walked it that weekend that they first opened, I went uh, at about three o'clock and every seat in the restaurant was full. Every seat at the bar was full. They had... I don't know if this was specifically a sports bar designed for the husbands of female shoppers that were yeah. out on the floor, but it, that's what it had morphed into. There were college football games on, and all all of the men whose wives were shopping were at the bar. Uh, and I thought that that was just a really mm -hmm. exceptional way to draw people in, get people comfortable staying there, maybe get a little buzz in them, and then they might want to spend yeah. some more money. That that certainly has it, something to do with it. It's fascinating. I was um, in uh, Milan last month, was it, at Host Milano, which is the big restaurant trade show. We bring a bunch of New York City restaurateurs over there to yeah. see, you know, what's on the market, uh, in, you know, throughout, throughout Europe. But in Milan, we went to – I forget the name of it, but basically it's a big – similar to Nordstrom. And same thing, both at the top floor and I believe it was the basement, they have food service and they have a bar and people are hanging out, drinking Aperol spritz while one person is, you know, shopping, you know, great food options. And it really does change the whole experience. Um, and also, while different, reminds me uh, about kind of hotels and food and beverage, where for a long time, I think the food and beverage options in most hotels, uh, it was looked at as an amenity to the hotel. We have people staying in rooms upstairs, they're going to need breakfast, where now clearly the food and beverage is the driving force and you'll have 
more New Yorkers eating at a hotel restaurant than you will people staying in that hotel. You will, and you'll want to stay in that hotel because of the food and beverage program. I mean, I, I stayed at the Ned in London, which has a particularly robust uh, food and beverage program. They have like six bars and restaurants just on their ground floor because of the activity that creates in the lobby, because it's a place to be, Because not because it's just easy to get quality food and a quality cocktail downstairs from your room, but also because it creates a sense of place and a sense of vibrancy. I think your point about department stores, the Europeans generally have been doing it better for longer. I mean, Harrods Food Hall sure. was one of the first. Um, New York department stores have taken a page out of that playbook more so in the last 10 years, and I think it is accruing to their benefit. I mean, Saks now has a really robust food and beverage program. They have a great restaurant on the top yeah. floor. They have a bar on the shoe in the shoe mm -hmm. section. But the Nordstrom uh, food and beverage program is unlike anything I've ever seen. That's just a tremendous It'll be fascinating to watch, you know, over the next couple months, the next few years, how it plays out and if it still actually becomes a destination for people to go similar to, you know, the hotels. And it also creates opportunities for restaurateurs that they may not have had in the past. Because in a lot of these cases, it's not the actual brand or owner of that store or hotel that's operating the food and beverage. They identify oftentimes a, you know, local homegrown restaurateur, bar, nightlife operator to kind of come in under a management agreement um, to run it. And that's creating opportunities where the restaurateur wouldn't have in the past. Frankly, they just wouldn't have the capital many times to build these places out, um, the relationships. So, I actually know restaurateurs that have told me, you know, they only look for big hotel and other type of development deals. Right. Because uh, those landlords are more prepared to contribute substantially to capital, uh, you know, the build out to uh, making more aggressive financial deals with those tenants. I think the other place that that's happening more and more, and I meant I alluded to this earlier, is in large office developments here in New York. Yeah. And, and as... Um, Large companies try to decide where they're going to move to. And, you know, we're looking at Hudson Yards uh, out the window right here. And that's obviously a, a tremendous success from an office standpoint. And they've been really great about attracting huge companies that maybe never would have considered locating on 11th Avenue and 34th Street. One of the ways that they've done that is to promise those companies amenities and substantial food and beverage programs. So th that very well. Let me ask you, is that very East Coast? Because I've spoken with folks like Silicon Valley, Bay Area, and I think there's actually legislation that was introduced because what they said, these big tech companies, for example, they open and operate their own cafeterias. cafeterias. Yeah. And I think there's legislation that was introduced that would basically prohibit them from doing that because people wouldn't leave the office to go out and eat. They wouldn't go out to you know drop stuff off at the dry clean or go to the pharmacy. So they wanted to have workers go out into the community versus staying on the corporate campus. Clearly, New York City is different. You're not getting in a car and driving places. Um, but um, are you seeing any of these companies wanting to do their own food and beverage in-house? Or is it more attractive to have a lot of different independently operated uh, restaurants? Well, I think it's I think it's way more attractive to have that outside of your space for a lot of reasons. One is you don't have to pay for it. Uh, rents are particularly high for class A mm -hmm. office buildings, especially in new construction mm -hmm. in desirable locations, Hudson Yards being an example. So to devote an entire floor to a cafeteria, 
uh, you have to be a very large company and there are not that many companies that are sizable enough to really devote that much space. Plus, it's challenging to operate a cafeteria. You're JP Morgan. You're, my wife works at Condé Nast, which uh, historically has a legendary cafeteria component to their office space. I think like anything else, people get, t- especially in a city like New York where there's so many options and your food and beverage expectations are so high, people get bored. Yeah. I don't care how high quality your cafeteria offering is, people will stop wanting to eat there every day. And I think that that legislation, I'm not really familiar with it, the legislation you're referencing in the West Coast, I think it's one of those things that's well-meaning and probably totally not required. I think that Facebook, if they subsidize their cafeteria and the food is super high quality, I think people will eat there three times a week. The other two days a week, they're going to want to go out and be out of their office. They're going to want to experience street life. They're going to want to go try a new restaurant that they haven't tried before. And I think it's really challenging for corporate cafeterias to uh, execute at a level that smaller mom and pop food and beverage businesses can. So I think that um, I think that the cafeteria thing is not something I'm particularly concerned about. I don't think that they're monoliths that are going to put smaller food and beverage uh, operators yeah. out of business. So before we transition to another topic, I just want to go back to kind of the mom and pop idea. You know, a lot of these brands that are going into the new developments, they may have been local, they started, you know, small, now they have multiple locations. We touched on it earlier in the discussion, but what should the smaller independent operators that maybe aren't looking to be the next, you know, Dos Toros, or the next Shake Shack and aggressive expansion, like what could they be doing to make themselves attractive to get opportunities in new developments, um, but knowing that they just want to have one or two cool places. Is there a way that they can prepare themselves um, and not just kind of be a concept of the past and stay relevant? Yeah, I mean, I I mentioned, um, especially in New York, how high quality your actual offerings need to be to stand out. I think focus on the product. Uh, That's first and foremost. You're a food and beverage provider focused on the food and beverage. And I think good things happen if you do that. What I find is specialization seems to have a a particular resonance these days. Want somebody who does one thing really well. Maybe it's authentic. Maybe it's ethnic. Maybe it's um, a specialty focus on health and wellness. Maybe you know. We I talked about chopped and sweet green. You know, obviously their focus is salads, but we're finding a really hyper laser focus on certain particular health and wellness uh, concepts. Um, maybe it is ethnic. Maybe you know, I'm looking out. At, and this is in the Javits Center, which, yeah. again, I think uh, makes an airport look like a food hall historically. Yeah. And we're looking at, you know, Nuchas. Those guys, they opened a kiosk in Times Square when Times Square pedestrianized their plazas. They're focused on empanadas. They have really one thing on their menu. They do it particularly well. I don't know the background of that operator, um, but, you know, they're hyper-focused on doing one thing really well. And I think that they execute. I think that Kudos to Javits for bringing in some local operators. Oh. Yeah, it's very cool. You would kind of trend, tend to think that places like this just have like the old traditional steam tray yeah. buffet style yeah. uh, options. But yeah, that's, it's very or, cool. or a Subway sandwich, mm-hmm. you know, yep. franchise. And again, this is a captive audience at these conventions. People can get really hungry, and the um, 
unionized food product generally here is relatively low quality, high price, and mm-hmm. people just eat whatever because they've been starving and in meetings all day. Yep. So it's great to see uh, local operators here. And I, I think that that's the kind of thing. You know, those guys, um, they have one small store. I do think that people will find you in a connected place like New York. I think that uh, Google, Yelp, uh, infatuation. Zagats just came back out. I just got the yeah. new Zagats, which is awesome. Um, I think people hunt down in a city like this and in a time like this, great food and beverage options. They will, they will go to the ends of the earth, earth to find it. They will go to, you know, the hop on an L train and go all the way out to, to Brooklyn. They'll go all the way to, to, they'll go from lower Manhattan to Flushing and get on a seven train yeah. to go find the best dumplings in Flushing. Uh, and I think that that's almost a, um, a treasure hunt, if you will, these days. And I think that that's a really exciting thing for young New Yorkers and old New Yorkers who are looking for the highest quality food that New York has to offer. I and mean, it is the greatest food city in the world. I don't it think is. there's any question about that. Restaurant capital of the world. Yeah. There's great stuff. But I, I think part of it is just the diversity of New York mm-hmm. City. You know, it's the size, the scope, people from all around the world, the melting pot. And you can really go get real, traditional, authentic foods uh, in so many great neighborhoods. Um, so there's definitely something for everyone. Yeah. Um, So I am a glutton for punishment. One of my favorite topics to talk about is regulations, although it gives me a lot of stress. um, I want to talk a little bit about that. And before I get into some of those specifics, I just want to get your take. You know, right now, particularly in New York City, uh, the real estate industry seems to be under fire. Um, Being in that industry, what's your take on all of this? I mean, I know it's controversial. It's political. um, but where do you think the real estate industry kind of stands right now? Yeah, I mean, it's in, it's in transition, obviously. I think uh, landlords historically, and it's very easy for them to be the boogeyman. Um, I think we cut checks uh, a, a, as humans every month, and the biggest ones generally are to our landlords. Um, you know, the cable company doesn't get a lot of love either. Um, that is true. <laughs> you know? The utilities. But, yeah, but but it, it's a similar kind of phenomenon, and it's very easy to to villainize the real estate industry as um, a behemoth, as bad for New York, as bad for the the common man, as bad for the, the, the little guy. I think that that is definitely not the case. Um, and I think that the real estate industry is doing a better job. I think that it, it can do a better job of um, educating people on the realities of our market. And I think one of one of the things I like to point to it, when I try to talk to people that aren't in the day-to-day of the retail real estate market and say, well, that store has been vacant outside my apartment building for the last year. And, um, you know, how is that possible? How is it possible that a landlord could keep that store vacant? They Everyone m- says tax credits. They, I, you hear this a lot. Yeah. Is is this true that landlords get some sort of tax credit? No, for there, there is no vacant? there is no benefit to keeping your store vacant. Now, is it true that a landlord might have an expectation of economics that aren't matched by the market? Sure. Is it possible? I think I find that. And has be- that changed? Because you know. Obviously, when you're at the top of the market, um, people are going to hold out because they want to get that big tenant. But when you talk about landlords that perhaps had 
high expectations. Um, perhaps now in the market going down, they become more unrealistic. Yeah, every every single landlord in New York has uh, has achieved reality to some extent as as far as the mar- the retail real estate market. Um, and I think that nobody has those expectations. They may have purchased the building in 2015 or 2016 with an expectation of rents um, that are not reflective of today's market. But they need a tenant. There are no tax benefits to keeping space vacant. In fact, you still have to pay your property taxes. You still have to pay your mortgage, your debt service, your electric bills, your insurance bills. Talk about the the debt service. So, you know, I know a lot of people purchase building kind of at the top of the market. Um, What's the relationship with the bank now? Because I imagine the bank would have some expectation that, you know, you are taking in X dollars of revenue in rent. Um, Is there any flexibility with the banks or are rents potentially being held artificially high because the owner has debt that needs to be serviced? Yeah, I I think banks... Uh, have also recognized the new realities to some extent. They don't really want that building back, so they're working, and especially in an environment with relatively low interest rates like we've had for the last few years. So it's an interesting phenomenon because the the retail market is relatively depressed compared to where it was three or four years ago, but interest rates have held really low. So banks can have a lot of flexibility working with their... um, with their building owners to say, okay, you know what? You weren't getting what you expected to get. Let's adjust the terms of the loan. I don't want to take this building back. Let's rework a deal based on the new realities. Um, but that generally isn't what's driving retail rents. I, I mean, honestly, landlords are just looking for t- good tenants. They are, The reality is there aren't enough tenants in the market necessarily to fill all of these spaces, even at lower rents. So that landlord that I mentioned where somebody walks out of their building every day and sees this vacant store for a year. Maybe it's a challenge space. Maybe it's on the Upper West Side where it's very difficult to get a liquor license. And We're pretty a, good there. You're, but, pre- you're pretty good there. But some other neighborhoods right, like, make or, it much more challenging. Let, let's say it's in, in Community Board 2 or 3 in the West Village where it's almost impossible to get a liquor license. And a space stays vacant. A landlord uh, is looking for a restaurant tenant. That's probably the highest and best use. It's one of the densest restaurant neighborhoods in New York and were very successful restaurants, small spaces, relatively low monthly rents. Um, but, you know, a, a community board won't give you a, li- a liquor license. So you have to find another tenant. Maybe you're looking for an apparel tenant. Well, you know, apparel is a difficult business yeah. these days. It's actually maybe even a more challenging business these days than the food and beverage business, yeah. which is probably Saying the first time in history yeah, that's happened. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, you mentioned property taxes. I was just speaking with the restaurateur, and they actually said to me, you know, listen, rent may be high, but if I'm signing a 10-year lease, I know what my, you know, annual rent is. I know what the annual escalations are, but they have not been able to really plan for the property taxes. And in most leases, the property taxes are passed through to um, the tenant. Do you see that because property taxes have continued to go up based on, I guess, higher valuations of buildings. Well, based on the, actually the needs of the city or just the whim of the city, you know, needing more money, really. Is that, in your opinion, influencing the real estate market? When you're having conversations with people, how much of that discussion is, you know, rent versus property taxes? 
Um, you know, generally property taxes, and again, it's it's not all property taxes that are passed through. Generally, it's just increases above their first year. So it really, it compounds itself into a problem at the end of somebody's lease. The first year, you're not paying any property taxes. The second year, you're paying just the increase in property taxes. Those increases have been so substantial, though, over the last, you know, decade that they are a really meaningful uh, part of a tenant's occupancy costs these days. So yes, every single small, and this is true, by the way, not just for small mom and pop tenants or or 30 seat restaurant tenants, but also for large chains. Yeah. I mean, the property tax obligation for a Dwayne Reed, for a 10,000 square foot Dwayne Reed is 10 times as large as a thousand foot restaurant tenant. So it's so, meaningful for everybody. Yeah. So, you know, obviously go back to lots of vacant storefronts, the frustration that that's created people, the kind of narrative uh, around vacant storefronts and why they're vacant um, has led to different proposals from elected officials to try to address the issue. Um, one of them uh, is more recent would be a form of commercial rent control. I understand why the real estate community, you know, is up in arms and really concerned about that. Um, interestingly, I've had, you know, conversations with small business owners and, of course, some would support it. Others are like, you know, this is misdirecting the issue. When the recent press story, and I forgot which uh, paper I read it in, came out, there was um, – you know, discussion, okay, this bill for commercial rent control is being introduced. Immediately, uh, a woman I know who owns two small restaurants in Brooklyn texted me and she said, this is misdirection. The elected officials are trying to distract from the laws and regulations that they're imposing on me and blaming just the rent. And right. she said, look, rent is something, but there's tons of storefronts and you know, brokers and landlords are asking me to open up new places. I'm concerned about other stuff. That being said, Sure. If you are a small mom pop business, you're coming, you know, to the end of a long lease and you see a huge spike in your rent, you know, that could potentially, you know, put you out of business. But from your perspective and generally the real estate community, what are the concerns with imposing commercial rent control or stabilization? Yeah, uh, the, the biggest concern I have are the concerns that I can't even really outline unintended consequences of a bill like that. So, and again, the bill will will probably change if it ever gets passed. It will probably not be what it is today. But let's imagine a world where uh, there are fixed increases and landlords are not able to charge new market rents in a in an area that they've helped develop or in an area where they've given you know a lot of these markets that have grown over the years, meatpacking, Dumbo. They started where uh, landlords controlled space and wanted to build a community. They'd give artists low rents. They give restaurateurs low rents and, and they want to benefit from the growth and development in that neighborhood. Let's say that landlords don't do that anymore. Let's say that landlords give one-year leases because they're limited and capped on how much they can uh, increase. That means restaurant tenants have no length of term. They have A, no ability to sell their business to somebody else because they have no term and they have no incentivization to spend CapEx in their space. They have no ability to spend money on a kitchen because they can't amortize the costs of that capex over a 10 or 15 or 20 year term. So I'm concerned about those things and I don't even know what else could happen. That's one. Two is, again, I've called it a, a hammer in search of a nail. The market is working. Um, we're talking about commercial rent increases when the market hasn't even increased. It's actually decreased over the last 
you know, three or four yeah. years in almost every major market and in some markets even more substantially than that. So um, I'm really way more concerned about the regulations you mentioned, Department of Health regulations, labor cost issues, garbage issues that are just, I mean, I walk out on the streets of Manhattan and see garbage bags every day and it's just wild to me that this is the greatest city on earth and we have this much garbage out on the streets. Scaffolding reform, I mean, is just a wild issue and one that impacts small businesses as much as anybody. It also impacts just the the pedestrian in New York City. Um, I want to ask, so sidewalk sheds, so they're the scaffolding sidewalk sheds. They go up when a building has to do some sort of construction or repairs on... Mandated uh, city repairs every five years. Yeah, that, that's local law 11, local law 11 I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something, you know, I always try to figure out, you know, is there common ground? And perhaps that's something that like the small business, the restaurant community and the real estate community, um, you know, can work on. What are the functions, you know, clearly... There's always going to be bad actors. There's always going to be that person that's going to, you know, landlord that will keep the scaffolding up, perhaps because they want to get rid of the tenant. Or maybe it's a situation where the work on the building costs more than the scaffolding and they don't have the money to do it. That happens, Um, yeah. So, you know, I think there can be a million different scenarios and it's hard to just kind of cast one reason for everything. Um, But are there specific ideas that you have and you may not because – it's not your role, like government reforms or what can we do to help protect the smaller mom and top pop businesses that have been in communities um, that are impacted by scaffolding that are impacted by rent? Yeah, um, there, there are a lot of things. And I actually am relatively familiar with it. Um, and again, I see them. They're, they're such a regular eyesore as a, a, a New Yorker and as somebody who walks and lives and shops in, in this city. We did a survey, just so you know, of uh, restaurants that have scaffolding. And we found that when the scaffolding goes up, I think on average, it was something like business going 20%. down 20 to 30 percent. Yep. That's a huge number. That's a huge number that, that can wipe out a small business's profit margin in its entirety. And sometimes these scaffolds can stay up for 24, 36 months, five years even. There are a couple of things that the city can do. And again, there's almost no constituency for sidewalk sheds, uh, whether it's the real Only estate. Only when it's raining out. Okay. I, I walked or, my dog. Or, or smokers, maybe. Yes, but, yes, yes, yes. But, there, but there are, there's almost nobody that likes sidewalk sheds yeah. except for the sidewalk shed companies that install them. And frankly, I don't think that's a large enough constituency to really matter. The real estate 100%. ownership community doesn't like it. The retail tenants don't like it. The residential tenants hate it. And just New Yorkers in general find them to be an eyesore and a blight. And I think we should do what we can. One thing we can do is to loosen the the requirements for local law work. Uh, right now, you have to inspect. And by the way, this impacts not just greedy, land, greedy huge landlords, but I live in a co-op building. Um, my co-op is, you know, shareholder. There are 24 shareholders, you know. Uh, elderly people, younger people, uh, really runs the gamut in Hell's Kitchen. And, you know, if you are in a co-op building and you have to engage with a local law architect, with a local law construction company, with a sidewalk vendor, that construction can be hugely costly. And um, on a nine-story building, it can be somewhere between two hundred and fifty and five hundred thousand dollars all in. It's a tremendous amount of money to make sure that one piece of a brick doesn't fall. Um, And again, public safety is important, and I'm not suggesting that it's not, but there's so many better ways to go through local law inspections, for example. Let's use drones. How about 
binoculars. Do we really need to uh, install a sidewalk shed and a scaffold to allow local law inspectors That's to interesting. go I check heard every that brick? How about a, good you know, idea. Dr- drone technology can be used really, really well in local law work. How about improving scaffold construction? Um, there's a company called Urban Umbrella. They're doing great work on designing so, uh, sidewalk sheds for the 21st so century. So nice. They're kind of They're white. white. They have LED lighting. They've got clear tops so that natural light can come down into them. How about the city gives a, a – and yes, they are slightly more expensive than the forest green hunking sheds that the Bloomberg administration mandated we, we all use. Um, how about the city give a small tax credit for that? How about we create some incentivization programs? If I, I don't want to see – nearly as many sidewalk sheds as we have up. But if we have to have them, if public safety and we really can't figure out a way around that, let's at least least make them look better. Let's at least give retail tenants maximum amount of signage on those sidewalk sheds. Um, Let's make them allow natural light in. Let's make them beautiful or as beautiful as a sidewalk shed can be. So we got a couple more minutes. Yeah. I need to ask you quickly about ghost kitchens. So we were both quoted in a commercial observer article recently about ghost kitchens, which for listeners, if they're not familiar, they're basically kitchens that restaurants or food service concepts can rent out and prepare and cook their delivery food out of. So a brick and mortar restaurant now cooks and prepares all of their delivery food in their restaurant, which is not really designed and set up to optimize delivery business most of the time. Yep. Um, so it's become this concept. I wrote a Forbes article. I have a lot of thoughts. We don't have time to get too much into the weeds, but what's your thought about ghost kitchens in New York City? Do they have a bright future? Is it a fad? Where are you? Yeah, I think, uh, and I read your very thoughtful comments in that com- uh, commercial observer piece as well. I think that we're of the same mind. Um, I'm not concerned about them in general. Uh, the concept mm-hmm. of them as an incubator for small businesses, I think is a really good one. I, I hope that the life cycle for a food and beverage business is starting a ghost kitchen, open your own, open, maybe open in a food hall, maybe open a kiosk, then open your own brick-and-mortar restaurant, then grow to a 20-store chain, whatever. Um, and I think it can start in a ghost kitchen. Your concern is not unfounded. And I think what I read was you're concerned about large private equity-funded um, you know, ghost kitchens that are not necessarily mom-and-pop ge- generating. They have a lot of money to have the ability to – well. If we step back, we have a lot of concerns with restaurant delivery services. Some of these third-party companies, they've been extracting huge fees from right. the restaurants. Grubhub, exactly. Uber Eats. Yeah. yeah, and it's become a big problem, and I've spoken a lot about it. And my concern is all of a sudden we're adding even more concepts that maybe aren't assigned to a brick-and-mortar restaurant or brick-and-mortar restaurant in the Lower East Side opens a virtual restaurant on the Upper West Side and adds more competition into that neighborhood. Who owns this customer data is a big issue. And restaurants are continuing to lose major aspects of their operations to third parties. And, you know, they try to make payroll every week and their rent every month. And some of these larger companies, when they get such a hold in aspects of the operations of a business, they obviously have leverage. And their investors will let them burn through cash in certain kinds or make huge investments just to get market share. Um, and the restaurant, frankly, can't compete because they don't have that same type of 
size and scope. But yeah, and how and how much of your customer base do you lose by going off that grid? And uh, how how many potential um, customers do you lose by not being on Seamless, by not being on Uber? You know, I have a, a local Thai spot, my favorite one in Hell's Kitchen. They do not deliver on Seamless. They do not deliver on on Uber Eats. They only deliver via their own proprietary app, so they bypass all of those charges. How do they stay in business? They deliver the most exce- exceptional Thai food in yeah. all of Hell's Kitchen, which is a pretty big feat since there are about 400 Thai restaurants. Which I think kind of what you were saying about concepts, especially quality. for the mom and pop quality, yeah. being unique, yeah. knowing what your brand is, knowing who you are and what you are as a restaurant, and people will come to it because that's what they care, a unique experience where they can't get it elsewhere. Right. So last thing on Ghost Kitchens, you know, we mentioned you know the types of tenants that developers and landlords are looking for, um, and we mentioned like food halls was a big trend. Um, do you think developers now are going to be looking to operators of ghost kitchens as a way to fill larger spaces or it'll be more kind of here and there versus... Uh, yeah, I, I actually don't because I think that the types of space that ghost kitchens can pay for uh, because there's an economy to the ghost kitchen business as well. And generally, they're looking for really affordable space, whether it's in a basement or, uh, uh, you know, a, a awkwardly configured space on a side street block that doesn't have a lot of foot traffic. So I don't think it's the same kind of retail real estate as a food hall. I don't think that they're looking for customers to necessarily engage with them. And I think that a ghost kitchen, production kitchen, delivery kitchen is not designed to engage with the customer the same way a food hall is. So uh, could it be converted into one potentially? Yeah. Could it be a destination in a basement on a side street um, where you can go in and actually dine in? Yes, but then you need more space. Then you need seating. Then you need public bathrooms. Then you need ADA accessibility. Then you need all the things that come with building a client-facing food and beverage operation rather than sort of a back-of-house uh, aggregator, which is what I, I feel like ghost kitchens are. Steven Sodendike. Awesome. Pushman Wakefield. Yeah. Excellent guest. Great conversation. Interested in kind of continuing this conversation, see where these trends are going. Uh, if people want to find you, reach out to you. Yeah. Uh, Steven.Soutendike at cushwake.com. My um, Twitter is S-O-U-T-S 23. Uh, would love to engage with you and um, look forward to continuing the conversation, Andrew. Beautiful. Well, this is Andrew Ridgey, the host of Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. If you like what you heard, please go wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe that's iTunes. Maybe that is Spotify. Find us, subscribe, leave a message, interact with us. The New York City Hospitality Alliance can be found on social media, Twitter and Instagram at the NYC Alliance. That's at the NYC Alliance. Facebook, LinkedIn, New York City Hospitality Alliance. And me, Andrew Ridgey, is at at Andrew Ridgey. That's Andrew, A-N-D-R-E-W, Ridgey, R-I-G-I-E. As well as Facebook, LinkedIn, and all those places. And the Hospitality Alliance is the NYCAlliance.org. If you own, operate a restaurant, a nightlife venue, Reach out to us, get involved with the community. We are your voice in the halls of government, in the media. We can provide you general consulting, education to make sure you're staying on top of everything you need to stay on top of if you want to succeed in the most challenging hospitality environment. We are at the Jacob Javits Center at the west side of Manhattan. We are reporting live at ICSC's 
New York deal-making show. Thank you so much for having us, and we will see you next time.